might want to kind of focus on the story uh, from the perspective of Joseph. And can I, I just want to say this. Guys, I learned a lot of new things this week. Like a lot of new things. So I'm going to be a little tied to my notes, and that's okay. And I want to tell you all of it because it is amazing. So I guess I'm just going to ask that you, if you need to get up a minute and do that, do that. But I'm excited. But we're going to do a deep dive today. So be excited and be ready. Um, When we read Luke 2, which is the more familiar of the two stories, um, that is sort of told from a Mary perspective. And in... um, Matthew 1, uh, it is the story more from Joseph's perspective. And I have to say, I've never paid a ton of attention to that half of the story. And this is what's been really fun and exciting for me this season is I feel like I'm getting this really familiar story that I've always known and always grew up with, and I'm seeing it differently, and it's just been fantastic. So I hope that you can, you're feeling the same way. So if you have Bibles uh, or will be on the screen, Matthew 1, Brian, please, see? Sometimes I say the wrong people's name, and I always say Josh, when really it's Brian's the one that's doing the clicking. So thank you, Brian. You're an excellent clicker. Yep. <laughs> Trying to appreciate people more. I'm going to start doing it. Um, so this is, uh, this is the scripture um, from Matthew 1, 18-25. But before we jump in, let's, let's pray, because I'm all over the place, and I've had a lot of caffeine. Center ourselves. <laughs> um, Father God, we just, um, I thank you. I thank you for this opportunity, because um, it's ridiculous. That I, that I get to do this work, um, that you've called me to it. And uh, I just pray that when I speak, um, that your name will be glorified and that um, things that you're teaching and showing me will be uh, from you. Um, and that if it's not, that people will just disregard it. I love how people will come up and, and tell me that they got something from a sermon that I don't ever remember saying. So keep doing that. Holy Spirit, come in this place and be the translator of the good news. Um, we thank you for who you are and who we get to be when we stand in your light. In Jesus' name, amen. That's better. Um, Matthew 1. Let's, uh, we'll just read this. We'll start off so that you can kind of get a, a glimpse a little bit because a lot happens in the first two uh, verses, and that's actually what we're going to spend a lot of time on today. So this is how it reads in Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and gave him the name Jesus. So that's our story. That's our context. And, and it's interesting. We've got to peel back a bunch of things um, because it's confusing uh, to me. And it, when I read it more, it just becomes more confusing. He was faithful to the law. That's the first thing that we really know about Joseph. And so being faithful to the law, in some translations it would be obedient 
Or some simply say Joseph was a righteous man. It kind of depends on what translation that you're reading. But if you um, look at the Greek word, and some of you do not care about Greek words, and that's fine, but this is to let you know that I'm not making it up. So can you give me that slide? Right? This is dikaus, right? And this is the one word that translates uh, in the Hebrew, or in the Greek, excuse me, uh, to be upright, just, or righteous. Okay? Interesting. Now, here we go. The Old Testament Hebrew equivalent of that word is, oh, I struggle with these words, stazik, okay? Now, it's a very significant word in, in the first century culture. So when you hear the word righteous, what comes to mind for you? Uh, so for me, the first thing I go to Bill and Ted's actual adventure, right? It's totally righteous. Or what's that, uh, Finding Nemo? Like, oh, righteous wave. Okay, you're with. Okay, you're with me. You're still. Um, maybe you're better than me, and that's not <laughs> where your brain first headed. But but being righteous has a lot of negative connotation in our culture too. Like we can say, "Oh, that person thinks they're so righteous," and we say it in sort of this bad. It means they're kind of like a straight-laced Bible thumper, right? But in the first century, um, being referred to as righteous was an epitome of a great comment that could be made about you. It meant that you were a person who had uh, character and integrity. It was the utmost kind of compliment to receive. So what we hear is that Joseph is righteous, right? The word is often paired um, with the word justice in scripture, which I didn't know. That's an interesting thing. I, I feel like sometimes they, they go together in my mind, but I sort of think about it from this sort of Western perspective and there's kind of a cool connection between these two words. So when, you hear, when we hear the word righteous, we sort of think right living, right? How, that's how the, the, it sort of translates for us today is that Joseph was faithful to the law, therefore he had right behavior, right? He was trying to be obedient. This is what I was told, so I'm going to live rightly or righteously. Guys, it's way more complicated and better than that. Uh, it is deeper and wider and richer uh, when you sort of pull it apart. And the word righteous in Hebrew actually means the standard of being in right relationship. The standard of being in right relationship. So when you think about relationships, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates this beautiful world where there is shalom, this, this peace. And we often think that the absence of that peace is the absence of conflict, but the word actually it means wholeness, right? This, this well-being, this thriving, everything in that time and space was exactly the way that God intended it to be. So when, when God creates the world, he creates, four, he creates us to have four relationships, right? We have the relationship with God, a relationship with one another, with ourselves, and with creation. So righteousness is being right in, in right relationships in all those areas of overall relationships. And the word justice means that the actions taken to restore righteousness and prevent injustice. Let me say that again. The word justice means the actions taken to restore righteousness and prevent injustice. So we know in the larger story, right, Genesis 3, sin enters the world. There's now death and brokenness in the world, right? Sin invades the good story, and righteousness becomes fractured. So in order to get righteousness back, there has to be justice. 
So this concept of righteousness and justice is all over Hebrew scripture. First century Jews would have understood this in its fullness. In fact, you know I love the story of Abraham. When God chooses Abraham, God's saying, the reason I'm choosing Abraham and his descendants is though it's that so they will be all about restoring righteousness. Righteousness and justice. So to be righteous means that you're actually living it out. It's an, it's an action thing that you do. It's not a stagnant thing. So this is the first thing that we're told about Joseph, is that he is a righteous man. And Matthew, uh, in Matthew 1.19, it also says that he's going to divorce her quietly. But then in the verse before, it says he's pledged to be married to her. And then in the end, they, he takes her home and he marries Mary. Right. What? How does that, I don't understand, how does that all happen? How does that work? Where does the breakdown where you can be, I'm going to divorce you quietly, but I'm also pledged to be married to you, and at the end of the day, hey honey, we're married. It's confusing. I don't understand. How does it work? I'm glad you asked. The first century world would have just understood this. I came across this wonderful quote by this theologian, and I have to share it with you because it's part of the reason we do the work of pulling away and uncovering what life in the first century would have been like. Context is so key for us. He says this, The gospel writers assumed their readers lived when, where, and how they do. They had no need to explain what everybody knows. They just thought they knew. Well, that makes sense. That's why uh, the reading scripture for us today takes work. It takes um, being a willingness to not just take a story at face value, but to sort of pull it apart. So in order to understand the context that we're in, and really what it meant for, right, for Joseph to be a righteous man, we need to pull back and look at what did it, how did marriage work in the first century? Because it was a two-phase process. Can you give me that first slide, Brian? So if you're a note taker and want to write all this down, great. But let me just, I just want to make sure you have it because it's kind of a, it's a crazy sort of system. And it's similar to some of the ways that we do things, but there's lots of differences, right? So the phase one would be betrothal and engagement. So this was arranged by the parents. So it was, it was an arranged marriage, but the couple had say. So it wasn't like this, you're never going to see each other or meet um, the couple had some um, opportunity to speak into that, some voice. The girl was usually between 13 and 15. Uh, the guy was between 17 and 19. And once it was agreed upon, um, it became this sort of marriage contract called a ketubah, right? And so the ketubah was a contract that outlined two main things. One was the bride price, and the second was the dowry. Now, the bride price isn't as bad as it sounds. Um, it's not this idea of buying and selling this woman. The bride price is actually what the groom's family would pay to the bride's family, not necessarily to buy her, but to compensate the family for the loss of a contributing member. So there, she's somebody that's going to make money, and when they get married, she's going to leave her father's household and go and join her husband's father's household. So this was like, hey... We get it. Uh, here's some money um, to try to make up for that, especially in the first little bit. So it's actually kind of a kind thing. But we hear it and we're like, whoa, so not cool. It was actually coming from a good place. So then when you move um, to phase two, uh, that's when she moves to her father's household. Now, the dowry, this is 
what the bride's family brings into the marriage with her husband. So it's probably a monetary value. A lot of times it was something like a necklace, um, something they could take with that if the, um, the husband would, were to die or to divorce her for some sort of insignificant reason, this would be money that she could use sort of during her time of need. So again, it would stay with her, except for if she were to be, were to be the one to commit adultery, then she would lose that and it would belong to the husband. Now, uh, this whole thing uh, generally lasted uh, about a year. And all this would have been done with a scribe or an administrator. Somebody like Alex, but more official. Alex runs our church in my life, and um, they would have had someone like that, right, that would, have, uh, that would have made sure it was all administratively taken care of. They were legally bound as a couple in phase one. Just in this betrothal engagement uh, section, it could only be dissolved if it were death or divorce. That's it. It's already official. But there's zero intimacy at this point, and they cannot ever be alone. Is there anybody that's dating, engaged in here? That you, can you imagine during your in, like, engagement not being ever able to be alone, to have a private conversation? Let alone, I mean, forget any of the physical stuff. This is, you cannot even have a conversation that's not an earshot of somebody else. And this whole thing lasted a year. That's a lot. That's a lot of pressure for these people. Then you move into phase two. There's a slide for phase two as well. This is when the wedding celebration actually happened. So a procession would start from the groom's house and they would like march up and have everybody with them. And then they would go to the bride's house, pick everybody up. And by pick them up, I just mean get on your feet and follow me. And then they would march back all through the city, all dressed up, looking great. And they'd go back to the groom's house. And then a 15-day wedding festival would start. They knew how to party in the first century. Some of you dads that have um, daughters are thinking that had to be pricey, <laughs> right? You're going to celebrate and have food and lodging for 15 days worth of partying. And then that first night, they would consummate their marriage. And they'd be officially like married, married at this point. Married in the sense that we, we would understand it. But then, this is the awkward part, in the next morning, in front of everybody, they would take out the bed sheet and they would hold it in front of everybody to show a blood stain, gross, to prove the bride's virginity. And in our world, we're thinking that is monumentally awkward, it's gross on lots of levels, I can't imagine the embarrassment that that would be, but in a first century culture, this was a monumental moment for both families. Both families took pride in this. Look at the, look at the upstanding um, woman that our son has gotten to marry and therefore brings pride to her family. And the same goes for the bride's side of the family. So this is a moment that is nothing but celebrated and thought to be, this is amazing, look at us, and good job parents raising two really good kids. The honor and shame culture that Tim talked about in his monologue was so deeply rooted. Right? Everything you did in that culture either brings great honor or it brings great shame to you as an individual, but also to your family. And I think that's a difficult concept for us to understand 
in Western culture. We get it a little bit. If we have things uh, in, our, in our family that uh, are embarrassing, if um, for our family, if you when, you, when you get pregnant when you're young, you're like, oh boy, and there's like an embarrassment and you got to like tell the grandparents. And there's like these things that happen that we get embarrassed about. But it's such a short-lived moment for us and then it's almost forgotten and it's wonderful and family, a lot of families rally around and it's better so much more quickly. But back then, that didn't happen. There was great shame that was brought on both families and they couldn't recover. And they wouldn't recover in their community, in society of any way. It's why honor killings still happen to this day. In some cultures, if you dishonor, bring dishonor to your family in any way, the, the, generally the, a male from that um, family will come and will kill you. Because death is better than shame. This is the context for this crazy story. So when, uh, when we open up the pages of this story to find out that Joseph just found out that Mary was pregnant... Joseph and Mary are in phase one. They're not even allowed to be alone together. Imagine for a minute, just for a minute, that you're Joseph. How do you even find out about this? How do you even have a conversation where your chaperones aren't going to hear you? You're never alone. What possibly is going through your mind? You don't know what's going on with the Holy Spirit yet. That's a memo that you have not gotten. So Joseph just gets to sit. How do you feel? I love the way that Tim talked about it in his monologue. He's angry and hurt. Betrayal has to be a word that comes up, right? This, this heart ripped out. He'd gotten to know Mary. They, were, they, they had decided this together. And I think the only thing he can walk away with is to surmise that this woman who he had pledged his life to had committed adultery already. And the interesting thing is both Roman and Jewish law required that you get divorced for adultery. That was just hands down, that's what you did. This happens, then this is what you do. But Joseph had two options. It's, scripture tells us that he decided to divorce her quietly. I did not know that you could also choose to divorce someone publicly. So let me give you those sort of how those two options would play out. So if he were to choose a public divorce, this is just telling us more about the character of Joseph. If you were divorced in public, it would have been conducted at the village gate by an elder or a judge. And the village gate is the most trafficked area in all of town, right? It would have, everybody in it would have been able to see, hear. It was meant to be public shaming. It was that way on purpose. Um, he, Joseph would have gotten to keep the dowry, so he would have been in financial benefit. Um, additionally, the family would have to return the bride price that they paid. And then the biggest part of this is Joseph would get to sort of publicly absolve himself of any wrongdoing. Hey, this wasn't my fault. This was all her. I had nothing to do with it. Right? We, we want that. <laughs> That's something that we can understand. When there's fault, when there's blame, like we want people to know that like I didn't, I'm not, it's not me. And Joseph got to do that because in an honor and shame culture, he got to avenge his shame and his loss of his honor. Because remember that public shame was worse than death, was worse than death. So this act would get to absolve him 
of any kind of shame. He could most likely return to normal place in society and just kind of go about his life and it would be fine. But on the flip side of that, what happens to Mary? Mary incurs all that shame for her and her family. It never would have been the same for Mary. Now, he chose to do privately. So what does privately mean? The next slide there, Brian. This one's much different, right? It would have required the presence of only two or three witnesses as laid out in the law in Deuteronomy 19. Um, He would present her with a certificate uh, of divorce in case she ever needed to prove it. Uh, He would lose the dowry. He He would just forego that. He would also potentially not recoup the bride price. Um, For honor's sake, it would likely have been returned, but there wasn't a guarantee of that. And he would lose an opportunity to regain his honor. He'd lose the opportunity to say, it wasn't my fault, it was all her. It's where you just leave it up to the the rumblings of what the community decides happen. We're familiar with that, right? We're familiar with how that works. It just spreads. Well, you know what I heard. And so it goes and so it goes. He wouldn't have had that. He wouldn't have had his day in court. But because of all of that, he would mitigate her and her family's shame. He would have chosen to take some of that shame on so that Mary and her family wouldn't be forced to, to be outcasts in their society. Because Matthew tells us Joseph was a righteous man. He's a man of honor and integrity, more than I knew when I started looking at this a couple weeks ago. Right? In his hurt and in his pain and in his betrayal, he made a choice to divorce her quietly because he wanted to be a man of righteousness. For Joseph, doing it privately was a form of justice because for him, he didn't want to allow her or give anyone the opportunity to treat her or her family unjustly. Joseph's a stand-up dude. He wanted to mitigate her shame, to take it on himself and spare her from that. Sounds like someone we know. But then, story's not over. Hopefully you're all with me. Angel appears, gives a very important memo. And Angel says, no, Joseph, no, 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 it's not what you think. Um, I know this is crazy and outrageous as it, as it sounds. Mary was, in fact, impregnated by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Can you say, I, I, I know it's a wonderful story, but that part is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Can you imagine for a moment that you're just like, mm, mm-hmm, really? Okay. Holy Spirit, sure. It just seems ludicrous. And I, I would imagine that it, it took some time, right? But she didn't cheat on you, right? God wants you to take her home and to make her your wife because she is going to have a baby and you're supposed to name him Jesus. So go marry Mary. And we think, yes, this is perfect. We're in a perfect scenario. She um, wasn't unfaithful. Joseph now can trust her and they can move forward together. She's going to have a baby and it's going to be the Messiah and we're going to celebrate Christmas and that's a wrap. Sugar cookies all around. But it's not the end of the story. We can't go there too fast because now there are still, from what we know about marriage, there are major, major implications for them going forward together as a married couple. So he chooses to marry her. He would be acknowledging in some way that he either got her pregnant 
or he would be condoning the fact that, yes, she committed adultery. There was no other option. No one's going to, no one's going to, they can't sell the Holy Spirit story. That's not going to, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Even in that society, that is not going to work. So we'd have to acknowledge that. As a result, they would, to get, they would be taking on a shame that's worse, worse than death. They would have had to, um, they would create suspicion because they wouldn't have waited a year. They would have just gotten married right away. They wouldn't maybe have a big wedding celebration. They wouldn't do the bedsheet thing. Scripture already tells us that they did not consummate their marriage. They waited until after the birth of the baby. Welcome to Joseph's side of the story. It's so complicated. But if I had to surmise the actions of Joseph, I would say he was obedient whatever the cost. We have this idea that we strive for happiness in our life, that when we are in communication and connection with God, that that will lead us to happiness. But God doesn't call us to happiness. He calls us to obedience. And I don't like that word. Because that's hard. It's hard to be obedient. It it requires me to do things I don't want to do. Joseph, before he gets the memo from the angel, he plans to divorce her quietly at great cost to himself because he was willing to be obedient. For him, that was the next right thing to do. When the angel shows up and tells him what's going on, he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to marry her. But that's also going to come at great cost. Did it ever dawn on you that God just didn't haphazardly drop Jesus into a family? I never considered it. God was looking for a righteous man and a righteous woman to raise a righteous boy. And Joseph was that man of righteousness. He was righteous because he was obedient and he was obedient whatever the cost. And it cost him so much. I wonder for us at this Christmas season what that means for you and what it means for me. What does it look like for me to be obedient whatever the cost? Oftentimes, being obedient is going to come at a cost. It may cost you a job or a contract. Maybe you've been in that place where this deal, this thing seems shady, and in order to be obedient, I have to say, I'm going to walk away from this. Maybe it's going to cost you some finances. Maybe it's going to cost you influence. Maybe it will cost you relationships. Right? When your relationship isn't honoring to God, it can actually be toxic for you. And, and maybe God's saying to you, in order for you to be obedient to me, this relationship has to end or it has to change. And that's going to hurt. And that's going to cost you. And I always guarantee that it's going to cost you some sort of pride. I don't consider myself a very prideful person until I am. Pride is something that, that we carry with us and it, it costs you that pride and honor because maybe you're going to have to take the high road, but nobody's going to know you took the high road. It's going to cost you something. It may even cost you the worst thing ever, not knowing. We are a people who like to know the things and have a plan, but God almost never works that way. 
He never gives us a detailed plan of how it's going to go. Oftentimes when God speaks, God says, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to walk in this direction. I'll keep you posted. We don't always get to know. We don't get the picture at the end, these results that we're going to find. God says, move. Move. I'll go. Go where I send you. And it's going to cost you something significant. And all this, when I think about the cost of things, it reminds me of um, Martin Luther King. His very last speech was on April 3, 1968 at Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. And he didn't know it was his last speech. He didn't know that after giving the speech, the very next day, he would be assassinated. So I want to watch the last couple minutes of this uh, speech with the idea in mind of being obedient, whatever the cost. Will you play that a minute for me? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I promise. I know this is, I haven't gone this long in a while, but I feel like this is worth it. I love that speech on so many levels. You've heard it before. But what I love is when you look at him, there is not a glimmer of fear in that man's eyes. Because he understands something fundamental. And that's the sense that we are not going, that life isn't going to last long for him. Our life is limited. His obedience to Jesus Christ was going to come at great cost. He knew that nothing we lose in this life will compare to what we gain in the end. And he lived that way all the time. I feel like he is the closest person in modern history that I've seen live like this. Being faithful to God is what is supreme, even when it is vastly unpopular. We're reminded of this in this Christmas season that Jesus Christ, who came 2,000 years ago, was, came to advance God's story. Because it is not about us. We get to play a part in this grand story. Martin Luther King knew that he had a part to play and, and God gave him a glimpse of what was to come and that's why he had no fear in his eyes. He knew that in the end, God's story always wins. And whatever the cost we will give now, it was going to be repaid to us tenfold at the end of the story. So we want to be righteous people. We want to be obedient whatever the cost 
because God has invited us all to play a part in this unfolding story. Joseph was obedient, whatever the cost. Martin Luther King was obedient, whatever the cost. And Jesus Christ was obedient, whatever the cost, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father God, it is, um, it is amazing to get the opportunity to sort of peel back the layers and to, to remember and to remind ourselves what life was like for Mary and Joseph so long ago. And the story that, that we've known for a long time takes on these different, we get these different views and these different vantage points, things that maybe we didn't know. And I, Joseph was an amazing man. Joseph was obedient. He wanted to live his life for you and with you. And he was willing to take on great shame and personal cost. God, we want to be those people. I want to be that kind of person. God, I pray that you give us a glimpse of the way that it can be. I feel like we get those glimpses when we come and we gather together in worship and we're here and we're sharing and we're opening your word and we're singing and we're we're being um, invaded by the Holy Spirit. God, you give us glimpses of what's to come. And there are people that live in our community that don't have that hope and haven't gotten that glimpse. And so they live life differently. And maybe they live life fearfully. I pray that we can become sharers and bearers of good news. That you change everything and that you call us to live uh, obediently to you, to love you and to love others, that all people have a place, they have a call on their life, and that you know them by name and you love them. God, help us to be obedient to the call uh, that you have us to live in this world, to love you with our whole hearts and to love your people. In Jesus' name we pray and believe. Amen.